To unlock new experiences, you have to go past the parking lot, past the ranger station, past the places you know. Our national parks are our national treasure. Places ancient, epic, and wild. Where moments are simple and friendships come alive. To celebrate the centennial of our national parks, our team at REI wants to help you to go deeper and explore our nation's most inspiring places. REI, a life outdoors is a life well lived. You're listening to the Jerpack Diaries, a production of Duct Tape Then Beer, with additional support from Patagonia, Kuat Racks, and Fireside Provisions. In November of 2014, I flew down to Punta Arenas, Chile, with two friends. We had planned this pretty elaborate, really challenging 350-mile ski traverse down the length of the Patagonian ice cap. This is Jim Harris. It had been my idea, and I sold Jim on the idea of combining pack rafting skiing, which potentially would have allowed us to access one of the most trickiest sections on the ice cap. This is Forrest McCarthy, an adventurer, writer, and map lover who's worked as a professional mountain, river, and polar guide for over 25 years. In the last five years, he and Jim have gone on several long expeditions together. But this Patagonia trip, it would be by far and away the biggest objective that they had tackled together. We brought these small trainer kites thinking that the Patagonia ice cap is a really windy place and that with as much bad weather as it tends to have, you know, instead of slogging with big packs on skis and moving a mile and a half an hour, maybe we could move, you know, four or seven or ten miles an hour using these kites like sails to get pulled across these fairly flat glaciers. But, you know, we never even got as far as starting the trip. We were still in town. We're just messing around with snow kites one afternoon when a, a huge gust picked me up off the ground with a snow kite that I was flying and it carried me across the field that I was in, and then a downdraft slammed me down. I don't even remember the crashing because I was knocked unconscious. So Jim had, had been injured pretty seriously. So I did contact his parents that night. That's definitely one of the more difficult things I've ever done in my life. And I did start the conversation, you know, Jim's alive, but there's been an accident. Today, for the fifth installment of Mileposts, our series about the intersection between people and parks, Jen Altschul brings you the grit to make it happen, the story of a life-altering accident. These activities that we love, they can take a lot away from us, but they also provide the skills and show us the way to bring us back from the edge. I'm Fitz Cajal, and you're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. This is like the first like real deal hike I've been on in a long time. It's been a year and a half since Jim Jack's been. It used to be a favorite activity and now it's like a lot more anxious and a lot less casual. It's the 2016 annual Packraft Roundup. Packraft is essentially a glorified inflatable pool toy that packs down to the size of a tent but can handle up to class four rapids. 
We just started a three-mile hike down to the confluence of the north and south forks of the Buffalo Fork River. From there, we'll float a five-mile stretch of Class 2 and 3 rapids down to a shuttle car. Definitely the first time carrying a backpack that looks, looks like it should be heavy, even if it's actually just large and kind of empty. Well, because Annie's carrying my pack raft. The Buffalo Fork feeds into the snake, which winds its way through Grand Teton National Park on its way to Idaho, Oregon, Washington State, and ultimately to the Columbia River. From our campsite on the Gravant River, you can see the jagged skyline of the Grand Tetons to the west. The massive landscape makes them look deceptively close. Last time I was here, we skied that one mountain that was back in the trees. I think it was on May 1st in 2014. We started in the wee hours of the morning and hiked and skinned to the very summit of the Grand Tetons and then, yeah, skied down Ford Stettner Coir and like cold snow blowing around our knees and by late morning we were sitting down the flats below watching avalanches pour off as everything heated up in the sun and all the rocks shed their, the snow that had fallen days before and like shared high fives. That was the last time I was here in this area. I spent a lot of time in the mountains. I spent a lot of time in avalanche terrain. I worried a lot about being in avalanches and dying in the mountains. And then I got paralyzed in a flat, grassy cow field. And that felt like it was totally out of left field. I think I made a bad call flying a snow kite on a gusty afternoon. I did not understand how dangerous that could be. But even the extent of my injuries seems like totally out of line with the mechanism, you know, like a twisted ankle or a torn ACL seems way more likely in that situation than seven broken vertebrae. Like I was only a couple feet off the ground. How did that even happen? When I regained consciousness, I was flat on my back in this grassy field. And uh, I remember being loaded into the back of the ambulance. And by that point, just kind of realizing the, the novelty of the lack of sensation, like, OK, I can't feel anything below like you know a couple inches below my sternum everything is just like might as well not be there once the news of the accident made it back to jim's family jim's brother kyle snapped into action he tackled the logistical nightmare of getting Jim on a plane back to the States. And pretty quickly, he realized that all of this was going to cost money. A lot of money. It was a little bit of a ready, fire, aim sort of a thing on his part, where it was like he just heard about my injury. He didn't have really any of the details. We didn't really know what I was going to need at that point. But he correctly assumed that at some point things would get very expensive. Kyle set up a page for Jim on youcaring.com. Kind of like GoFundMe, but with a medical focus. I think initially I put $10,000 as the goal, which looking back is pretty funny. But I honestly had no idea what it was going to do. 45 minutes later, we hit that goal. And so I upped it to maybe 25000 And within three hours, we had hit that. And I was just kind of like, oh, man, I don't want to be that guy that keeps upping the ante, so I put the stretch goal of 100000 Donations came in first from people Jim knew, then from companies he had worked with, then professional athletes, brands, people he had never met. 
There's one guy from Teton Gravity Research's website who wrote something like, I always thought you were kind of a jerk on the internet, but here's 50 bucks. I was like, I don't, I don't think I'm a jerk on the internet. Roughly 1,200 people contributed to Jim's fundraising campaign for a grand total of $107,000. I was shocked by the generosity of a lot of people. Just blown away by the outpouring of support. It was really cool to see uh, the outdoor community rally together. It's allowed him to focus 100% on rehabbing versus like getting right back to work, which a lot of people have to do. Oh yeah, stepping over the log. Rehab log stepping. Back in Wyoming, the sky darkens from a manageable overcast to a menacing thundercloud black and hurls massive raindrops and pellets of hail at us and fits throughout the hike. We're on a well-tread trail that gradually descends an evergreen hillside to the river below. A mellow hike, unless the furthest you've walked in the last year and a half is back and forth across the Denver airport. I think, yeah, this is the little, this is the little swizzle through that ravine. And then we just drop down the last couple hundred feet into the field and then we're at the confluence and the pack bridge. That valley bottom still looks kind of far away. Oh. Double pull dropping. Oh, thanks. While his brother coordinated the fundraising effort, Jim lay flat on his back in the hospital, staring at the ceiling panels for five weeks. They were just those like generic rectangular ceiling panels, the little inch wide metal strips that separates them, and they're kind of like that. Yeah, sort of popcorn-y foam material. But if you stare at them long enough, it's like looking for shapes in the clouds or looking at constellations, and you start to see like this kind of like roast starch test of ceiling panels. Ultimately, it had taken eight days to fly Jim back to the States from Patagonia. A long time to delay that kind of surgery. The surgeons were not optimistic. I... Uh... I remember waking up and being able to wiggle my left toes just a teeny, teeny bit, like a millimeter or two. But there was some kind of neural connection. It seemed like a really good sign. Like, well, there's a signal getting all the way down to my toes and coming all the way back up from my toes to my brain. So at least some of the wiring is still working. Over the weeks that followed, the swelling in Jim's spine continued to go down, which reduced the pressure on his spinal cord. I started to be able to, like, you know, use my quad muscle and could lift my foot off the bed. I was in like tears of joy when that happened a couple weeks after my accident. At the end of five weeks, Jim was transferred from Ohio to the Craig Hospital in Denver, one of the best neuro rehab hospitals in the world. They had me out of bed almost immediately, which was great. I was in a neck brace and in this huge torso brace, but I was like, had access to a wheelchair and I could wheel myself around the hospital. And six weeks is a really long time to like stare at the same ceiling panels day after day. So it felt like this huge sense of liberty just to be able to like cruise around the, in the hospital and look out the windows and go sit outside. But my, my recovery didn't stop there. It kind of kept steadily marching along. Gradually, Jim could yank himself up to standing from a wheelchair and wobble in place so long as he was holding on to something stable. By April, he could walk with a walker. And could maybe only walk for like 200 feet at a time or something like that. But it was like, okay, well, this is enough to get from a handicapped parking spot into a restaurant and get a hamburger and then reverse that at the other after dinner. Jim moved out of the hospital and in with his parents, who had rented an apartment up the street in an old folks' home. It was a kind of a strange experience to be 
33 years old were in a place where the the average age I think was 83. But at least I wasn't the only person using a walker there. It was kind of like common means of transportation. The more time Jim spent on his feet, the more neurons grew back between his legs and his brain. He used the walker for about five weeks, then transitioned to trekking poles. And then it's been this incremental progression of learning to step with one foot and step with the other foot. our pace is mile and a half feels like over a mile an hour yeah. but not by a lot maybe not too definitely a little slower on the spot where I have to pay more attention to my feet it takes us a solid two hours to walk the three miles down to the river Jim never complains or appears to be in pain but swinging his legs in front of him is still cumbersome and takes time the downhill makes it easier for me for sure I have a really hard time getting like my right leg to drive forward. Like, I have the strength to stand up on it once I get it there, but it's really hard to like step it forward because when I was first learning to stand and walk a year ago, I relearning that I learned a bunch of bad habits because I was like just trying to get my legs to go forward any way I could will them yeah. and not necessarily using the correct muscle groups in the correct order and ended up with a pretty asymmetrical stride because of it. Now I feel like we're pack rafting for real. We actually walked somewhere that would be a pain in the butt with a, a different boat. I feel like really this whole progression has in some ways felt like going from infancy to adolescence compressed into like six months time, where for a while I just needed so much care, like people were feeding me and changing me and checking on me every hour of the night. And then eventually could do more things for myself. and. My parents were there for all of that. And so they go from, you know, like taking care of me like an infant to Jim being able to dress himself. And they watch as like Jim can get himself in and out of his wheelchair and Jim can get himself in and out of the car without somebody else having to boost him. And so at each little stage, it was like kind of regaining a little independence in a way that felt like it sort of paralleled childhood, you know, and then got to the point where I started like going out with friends and be like, okay, well, be careful and don't stay out too late. And Once Jim could walk and drive again, he left for Truckee, California to continue his rehab with High Fives Foundation, a nonprofit dedicated to helping athletes recover from life-changing injuries. As I drove away, left my parents in Colorado, they were, all three of us were teary, and they described it as being exactly the same feeling as when they dropped me off for college. We're just floating down in a river, and the water's really clear right here. It's all these like round river stone bottoms, and we're just kind of like gliding along at five miles an hour over all these multicolored rocks. Yeah, it's a really gorgeous kind of afternoon. A little bit of sun right now between the thunderstorms. We inflate our boats and push off from the sandy bank just above the confluence. Almost immediately, the size of the river doubles as the two forks merge and pushes us along at a firm but comfortable pace. We've got about a 10 or a dozen little colorful pack rafts all floating down the river together. Everybody's in dry suits and funky colored helmets and looks like a bunch of floating skittles going down the river right now. 
pack graphs sure do look silly. So the um, the river character kind of changes about here, and we go into this little gorge for pretty much the rest of the way. Like it gets a little narrower and faster. As if on cue, the sky darkens as the canyon walls narrow, the river quickens, and the water turns white with rapids. It becomes clear that Jim's a natural athlete when he gets in a boat and only has to rely on his upper body. These aren't huge rapids, but big enough to send water slamming overhead and puddling in the spray skirt in your lap. Rapidos! Yee-hoo! <laughs> I went and did PT and rehab stuff five days a week, but as I started to get more functional, the changes became more subtle. It was like, it became feasible to do my own grocery shopping, just pushing a cart up and down the aisles. Mentally and physically, it was a huge exertion. Like, I had to like psych myself up for it. But also one of those things that the more I did it, the easier it got. And there's was something very comforting about just like mundane, everyday that I never enjoyed doing previously that I suddenly saw as being a symbol of being independent. Over time, Jim's rehab began to move outside of the hospital, the gym, and the grocery store. I remember in March, my parents drove me to Utah, and that was like, it's been four months after my accident, and was the first time I'd really gone for like a scenic drive, driving through mountains, and I've never been a huge fan of the driving part of road trips and things, but I really appreciated it appreciated it then. And then by last summer, I was swimming in Lake Tahoe and, and pack rafting the lake a little bit, though I couldn't, like just the exertion of blowing up a pack raft, which is really not that much work, was more than I could handle. Gradually, Jim relearned how to walk without trekking poles. He relearned how to mountain bike, then to ski. I mean, Jesus, he broke his leg this year. I, I, I give him a call to catch up. And... And he's like, yeah, Forrest, I broke my leg, but I broke my leg skiing. <laughs> you know, he was just so excited to ski. Luckily, it wasn't a terrible break. And... Paddling white water in a steady downpour through a Wyoming canyon. This is kind of cool. It's kind of cool because I'm, I'm pretty warm. I feel like this would be way less fun if I was way less warm. The rapids soften into small riffles and the canyon walls retreat as we float the last mile and a half and start to scan for the takeout. We look at a little spring coming down. A little trickle over the moss pillows. Yeah, oh, that's pretty. Little elf gardens. I mean, it's awesome, Jim. I mean, I, I think the world of the guy, and I love seeing him, and he's just such an inspiration to me. I think part, part of his success and his recovery is just his continual positive attitude and just willingness to get through it and do it and make the best of the situation. Those are certainly uh, qualities of why I like doing expeditions with Jim. He was an awesome partner. And yeah, and this, I think the same qualities really helped him through the recovery process. 
the whole recovery is a weird thing to take credit for in some ways. Obviously it has, some part of it is my own drive and outlook, but if all of it took to like recover from paralysis was motivation, then pretty much everybody would recover. And I think my recovery is repeatable. I don't think it's a miracle, but I don't, I don't know the formula for the, what combination of factors made it happen for me. Like mentally, my success has been due to like parsing my recovery goals down into more bite-sized pieces. Like I've, I've really, and still think about this injury in terms of almost being like a long expedition. And that if you go on some really big ambitious trip or you have some enormous goal, if you just look at the big picture all the time, it's too intimidating, it's too big, it seems too insurmountable. And that if you break it down into the next move or the next pitch or the next day of hiking or the next rapid or whatever it is, that those chunks are manageable. And you're like, cool, I can get up this next pitch. And there's a lot of aspects to spine injuries that are that same way. Where you're like, will I walk again? And like, I want to walk again, but I don't know if I'll walk again. Like, I don't even know how to start. And it's like, well, for me, it was like, it came down to like breaking those down into like, cool, I need to be able to like wiggle my toes. And I would sit and think about wiggling my toes and till one day that magically started happening. And, and there aren't answers. There aren't answers from surgeons or nurses or MRIs or there's no way to image people's injuries in a way that anyone can meaningfully make predictions about what the outcome might be. And that uncertainty I witnessed pull a lot of people down in some, some pretty deep depression. And that kind of cyclical thought of like, will I walk again? I don't know if I'll walk again, but will I walk again? But I don't know if I'll walk again. And in my mind, like, is what's the weather going to be like on summit day? And it's like, will it storm? Who knows if it'll storm? Maybe it won't storm. Maybe it will storm. And you're like, okay, this is just, this is wasted energy. Like, I'm upsetting myself without changing the weather at all. The weather's going to do what the weather does on that day. And if it's not the right day for the summit, then maybe we'll do it a different day. And outdoor sports, I think, teach us to be comfortable with that uncertainty. I really do think that the way I understand the world and the way I look at the world is pretty informed by being part of the outdoor community and my interest in these outdoor and wilderness trips got me into this and it's the same skill set that's going to get me out of it. What's your life to be back? It feels a lot less melancholy than I expected, I guess. You know, the first time I went back to Utah, a few months after my accident, I was up in Little Cottonwood Canyon in a wheelchair, looking up these peaks that I feel like were my backyard for a handful of years, for eight or nine years, and peaks that I'd skinned up dozens of times, and train that I felt like I knew really, in a really personal way, and all of a sudden, like from a wheelchair, looking up at people skiing down from above was a pretty crushing feeling. Like, that was hard, that was like, oh, like, I might, like, I'll probably never be up there again. And now that I'm here, I'm like, oh, if I, if I wanted to climb the Grand Teton, it might take me five days, but I could probably do it. I could probably drag myself and get a support crew of people together to inch my way up there and maybe pull it off if I was, like, had the grit to make it happen. <laughs> I see the bridge. I see the car. That yeah, looks like it'll be easy, straightforward enough. I'm glad we did. I'm glad we did this. No, it was cool. Nice job, team.
Biopost series is made possible by REI, who encourages you to go deeper and explore your national parks. Download their guide to the National Parks app to find the perfect hike, sit through the best of lists, and track your location through the park, even if you don't have cell reception. Best of all, the app is completely free as part of the celebration of the National Park Service Centennial. REI, a life outdoors is a life well lived. Additional support for the diaries comes from the good people of Patagonia and from Fireside Provisions. Also from Kuat Racks, makers of a better bike rack. Check out their lineup of sleek, easy to use roof racks and hitch racks at kuatracks.com. As always, none of this would be possible without you, our community, you keep the diaries thriving. To pledge your support, visit our website, dirtbagdiaries.com and click on the button in the upper right hand corner. Thanks so much to everyone who has already donated. A big thank you to Jim Harris for letting us tag along with him at the Pack Raft Roundup. We're so stoked to see you up and getting after it again. You can find Jim's photography at perpetualweekend.com or follow him on social media, especially on Instagram, to track his adventures and recovery. Music today by Jacob Bain, ADC Bicycle, and Amy Stolzenbach. The tracks are courtesy of Free Music Archive or with permission from the artists themselves. Jacob Bain and Nice Koto composed our theme song. You can find links to the artists at our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. This episode was produced by Jen Altschul and me, Fitzcahal. Becca Cahal is our executive director. You've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in.